Hello, all, and welcome to the Gestalt IT Rundown, your weekly look at the IT news of the week. I'm your host, editor with Gestalt IT, Rich Straffolino. Welcome to the show. Joining me across this great nation of ours in, you know, the panhandle of life and of our nation, the Oklahoman, Tom Hollingsworth. Tom, welcome to the show. Hey, Rich. It's good to be back. I'm glad to see the lights were on around here while I was out doing exciting field day stuff. Um, but I'm happy to be back. Um, evidently, news happened while I was gone. Evidently, a few small stories have broke. We have a jam-packed show, so I think we're going to jump right into it. And of course, IT, we have new services abounding all the time, and DigitalOcean is no exception. They announced a new managed database service supporting Postgres at launch with plans to offer MySQL and Redis support by the end of 2019, probably a little sooner, Q2, Q3, somewhere around there, but they weren't definitive on that. Much like uh, DigitalOcean's VPS products, these can easily be launched by devs in a mere matter of seconds. Uh, you can either do it uh, through their UI or through uh, APIs, which is kind of you know their bread and butter there, um, with maintenance, security, and daily backups handled by DigitalOcean, so kind of an interesting offering there. Uh, basic one CPU 10 gigabyte package starts at $15 per month, and it steadily goes up from there, as you can well imagine. Uh, you know, we're looking at what DigitalOcean now has on tap. They've really expanded beyond this, you know, their, their VPS kind of core offering. They have object and block storage. They offer load balancing, container services, and now manage databases. Is there a next logical step for them to go with this? And, you know, how big of a deal this is for their developer audience? Honestly, I don't know that this is a, a direction that they're trying to go as much as it's them trying to play catch up. Because if you're building a three-tier web app, one of those tiers is a database. And if you don't have it, someone's going to go get it from somebody else. So this is kind of a defensive play on DigitalOcean's part. Um, I'm, I'm glad to see they're, they're going to do this. But I'm really curious to see if there's going to be a lot of uptake. Because you're basically fighting against the incumbents at this point. And unless you're lowering bills or making it stupid simple, people aren't going to pick this up. Well, I mean, that's though that's DigitalOcean's kind of moniker, right? Is that they're able to offer extremely affordable and extremely easy to set up. So maybe this isn't going to be your production database down the road, but for quickly spinning that up demo, I think there's enough of an audience there that that could be a substantial revenue source for them down the road. And as people buy in, I, you know, I also feel like the audience is, okay, buy into this now, and then we're the name that you trust with just making this easy, just making this work, as opposed to something, I don't know, a little bit more sophisticated that you could get, uh, but also more complex from someone like AWS. Yeah, that's true. All right, we had some big news uh, also coming from Arm. Uh, they announced a new uh, chip designs under their new Neoverse brand. This is kind of their, their more data center focused stuff as opposed to their more consumer focused uh, chip designs. Uh, these are specifically chips designed for cloud and edge applications. So really focusing on hot areas here for Arm. The Neoverse N1 platform is meant for public cloud hyperscalers with a focus on raw compute. It's built in a seven nanometer process, supports four to 128 cores, although I think 64 cores is probably probably going to be aware that we see most of the uh, actual production being done. It features improved uh, cache and branching prediction designs with up to 128 megabyte caches, so really big as opposed to something um, even like an epic, you know, 32 core uh, CPU from AMD has 64 uh, uh, megabytes of L3 cache, so really big caches there and optimized for uh, virtual machine context switching and performs 2.5 times better per clock 
uh, based on uh, uh, Cortex A72 designs at caching and proxy benchmarks uh, compared to the prior generation. The Neoverse E1, meanwhile, is the, their edge-focused design for high bandwidth use cases, looking at like something like 5G base stations uh, or uh, you know a really high-volume uh, routers, you know 100, 100 gigabit routers, that kind of stuff. It's both on the same process, but it's designed to be deployed in clusters of eight core units uh, with smaller caches, streamlined instruction pipelines, and simultaneous multi-threading, so you can try and avoid a little bit of uh, caching inconsistency there, kind of making up with it with quantity uh, rather than perhaps quality. Uh, both will have significant uh, software support at launch, uh, including from uh, Red, Hat uh, Red Hat Enterprise, VMware, OpenStack, Docker, uh, Microsoft.net, and much, much more. A lot of open source projects there as well. Um, so, Tom, you know, I, I know you've been skeptical of kind of like the arm of the data center story. I think that's a very tempting narrative for us to go into. But this seems more than, hey, a company threw a bunch of phone CPUs into a rack and they're, you know, they're going to let you run some apps on them or something like that. This seems like a much more sophisticated uh, offering from ARM this time around. This, I think, is stage one of the eventual move to ARM in the data center. And yeah, as Stephen Foskett pointed out this morning when he was talking about this article, um, ARM in the data center will show up about the same year as VDI. Although <laughs> I, I will make a bold prediction, a Gestalt IT rundown, bold prediction. Da, 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 da. Uh, ARM in the data center will happen in 2022. Okay. Um, we're three years out, and here's why. Um, there was a report today that Apple is going to unify development of all of their devices, um, software, so Mac, iPad, iPhone, um, all going to be one unified package uh, in 2021. What do two of those three platforms have in common? They run on ARM. What's the third platform always been rumored to do? They're going to dump Intel, and they're going to run Macs on ARM. What, what does that mean? Well, if everything runs on ARM from a consumer perspective, it means the developers are no longer focused on running instruction code for x86 and they're writing for ARM instead, which means all the developers are gonna be wanting to write packages for ARM. So give it plus or minus seven months from the announcement at WWDC from Apple that ARM is the way in the light and everything will be doing that. You figure 2022 is the year of ARM in the data center because companies like um, you know the ARM uh, group that have put this together now suddenly have platforms are going to be running there. Now containerization is going to help that a little bit because yeah, containers will, and they don't really care one way or the other. But I think what you're going to see is within three years that there are going to be more and more people that are starting to make that leap. Um, and the cloud is really going to adopt that because honestly, once you get into a platform as a service, nobody cares what hardware is running underneath. You could be running this on raspberry Pis. Well, and I think uh, we've started to see the, a lot of public cloud providers uh, make some hedges against this. We had Amazon, of course, coming out, you know, with with some initial, you know, uh, uh, ARM-based offerings that you can use uh, on their cloud. We've seen companies like Packet have kind of tiers that you can use for development on there. I think the real big test is whenever we see Microsoft offer that, that that will be a major sign. Uh, one that uh, uh, Wintel pours them out, uh, that's dead. Uh, but that that's really, you know, kind of hitting the mainstream there. The other interesting thing about this announcement is the timeline or the, the roadmap, the product roadmap that ARM announced for these chips. Basically, they're committing to every year releasing a new core that's going to improve, improve performance about 35%. So that to me, you know, maybe is a little bit of a concern for a much more conservative buying audience like the enterprise but maybe to your point, they're really not banking on anyone buying this in volume until maybe 2021, 2022, when then they're going to have, they're, they're showing that they're going to have significantly more powerful chips available at that time. My only concern would be, you know, they get Osborne and, you know, no one's, no one's going to buy this now knowing that next year there's going to be a significantly more powerful chip down the line. 
I think the every year release cycle is is it's the consumer focused part, but it's actually speaking more to cloud providers. Every mm -hmm. year we're going to have something a little bit faster that you can introduce and charge a little bit more for, and um, it, it'll be appealing to them to constantly refresh their machines instead of running them until the wheels fall off. Yeah, kind of, and then that definitely falls into like the fleet management, you know, where you're just going to have someone going through and carrying out all those SOCs and just shoving the new chips in there. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All right. Well. Uh, speaking of pouring things out for dead things, hey, Amazon's not coming to New York City anymore. Amazon has canceled plans to build a corporate campus in New York City. The campus was set for Long Island City, Queens, and Amazon claimed it would create more than 25,000 jobs in the area in exchange for nearly $3 billion in state and city incentives. And I think that was the sticking point. Several local lawmakers criticized providing subsidies to such a large corporation, and especially one that doesn't pay taxes. Uh, and ultimately, Amazon said in a statement uh, last Thursday, we do not intend to reopen the HQ2 search at this time. We will proceed with planned Northern Virginia and uh, Nashville locations, and we will continue to hire and grow across our 17 corporate offices and tech hubs in the US and Canada. Shouldn't this have been Amazon's strategy since the beginning, Tom, rather than, you know, trying to make this whole HQ2 search, I mean, basically like a game show at some point, right? I mean, they were, you know, begging every single municipality to, hey, how big is the red carpet you're going to roll out for us? Didn't they, in this climate, realize that there was going to be any kind of blowback for that? Well, they they played the game. And, and we've seen this with sports stadiums for years. How big of an incentive package can I give you to move the Raiders to, I don't know, Poughkeepsie? Well, <laughs> if you can make, if you could build me a stadium and make me pay tax, make my grandkids not have to pay taxes, the Poughkeepsie Raiders it is. Now, this, this is what happens when Amazon realized that building a, a headquarters in Northern Virginia is okay, but not great. And everybody has to have a presence in New York, right? Well, what happened was is that New York wanted to play ball, so they gave them a, a good deal, or let's let's face it, it was a sweetheart deal, and people got mad. And it wasn't just the the Amazon haters; it was the people who, you know, there have been reports since this news came out about the speculation market in real estate. The bottom not only fell out of it; it was like a bullet train all the way to hell, <laughs> because now all of a sudden, all those pricey apartments that the Amazon people and other speculators were buying up left and right and hoping to turn themselves into the digital slum lords, that ain't going to happen now, because nobody wants to live in Queens. I, I watched Coming to America. <laughs> But so that's that's your last touchstone. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that, that's it. That's all I got. Because everything I've ever seen in Manhattan or in New York is Manhattan. I, I the people. If you are a fan of us in Queens, I really appreciate you. You have a lovely town. I, <laughs> I, I, I'm making jokes. Please, please don't come find me. Um, no, I, I think that this was probably the first shot back towards companies. Because I mean, Google announced a big headquarters in New York City. Guess what? They didn't have to do a search. They knew they were going there the whole time. Yeah, they're going to extract subsidies because that's how it is. But now that these subsidies are being publicized, that they are really being scrutinized, what does it mean to not have to pay $2.5 billion tax dollars in taxes over 10 years? I don't know. A lot. <laughs> well, and then the other thing is, instead of going for the, I guess, the one big PR win here, it, it almost... You know, seems like they could have just said, hey, at our 17 corporate offices and all these different locations, we're going to hire an additional thousand more people because we're expanding our services or, you know, whatever, whatever they were going to do at HQ2. They could have a bunch of little stories in 17 different locations. And, hey, Amazon's bringing jobs to the area and they're great and we love Amazon as opposed to Amazon, you know, wants corporate welfare uh, in the most you know expensive real estate market uh, in the U.S. or something like that. It just seems so. This was all about having a sleek building. 
with a New York City skyline as a backdrop that you can take drone photos over and put them in the quarterly reports that Jeff Bezos is sending to his investors while he's busy somewhere in the middle of nowhere building a giant rocket that will eventually take him to planet Bezos or planet Amazon. Well, one thing that they won't be able to do on planet Amazon is buy any Israeli security startups because that's what Palo Alto Networks did. They announced this week that they'll be acquiring the Israeli security startup Demisto, which sounds like a coffee drink, for $560 million in stock and cash. So a pretty big deal. Uh, Demisto offers a combination of incident management, machine learning, and interactive investigation. The last one is is actually kind of cool. It's basically a, uh, a way to do collaborative investigations on more complex security incidents. I've seen it compared to a virtual war room, although I think that's a little dramatic uh, uh, for, for organizations. Demisto will continue to serve their existing 150 customers, so they're not going away. Um, that doesn't sound like a lot, but it's a, a lot of Fortune 100 companies uh, in the Fortune 100 500, and they'll use Palo Alto Networks channels for further distribution to grow that uh, customer base, as well as obviously integrating uh, with uh, the things that Palo Alto Networks is already providing and from a security perspective. Tom, where does this fit into kind of their overall security operating platform going forward? So I really like this play from Palo just because they're admitting that breaches are not something that can be stopped completely. Um, Demisto offers uh, digital forensics investigations. Basically, what happens when you figure out you got breached? And so this is a good way for them to offer kind of a like a day two service of, mm -hmm. oh, crap, we found out that someone's had a firewall rule that's letting them get in for the last eight months. Um, so they can start doing all the groundwork and collect all the data and be able to put a report together. And this is especially true if you work in Europe and you have to answer to GPR people. Um, reporting is going to be king for that. So this is basically Paolo's way of saying, we got your back. We're not indemnifying you because you're an idiot if you get breached. But if you do happen to get breached, we have this other service that we would be more than happy to sell you. That will help you write the report before you get your butt hung out to dry by the GDPR people. Is this like kind of a start for an incident management land grab, do you think, going forward? Are we going to see, you know, companies like SolarWinds and stuff like that that are, you know, kind of just general uh, uh, data center services, but with this more of a security focus recently uh, going to be making moves like that? I have a feeling you'll see three or four security companies start, uh, snatch these startups that are doing this digital forensics analysis thing. Um, if you're smart, if you're listening to this in Tel Aviv, go start one of these companies and in about two months, Cisco will come knocking on your door and you'll be set. Well, you may not be set though uh, if you uh, don't listen to this next story here. Now, Tom, I'm gonna lay out some ground rules here. I think some common sense ideas here. Number one, don't tug on Superman's cape. Don't spit into the wind. Just that makes sense right there. Uh, you don't pull the mask off old Lone Ranger and you don't mess with Russian state sponsored hackers. According to CrowdStrike's 2019 global threat report, the breakout time, a.k.a. the time from compromising an endpoint to an actor moving east west within a network can be as little as 20 minute for state sponsored hackers, specifically looking at uh, hackers tied to Russia. Based on a sample of 30,000 intrusion attempts, hackers linked to uh, Russia have an average breakout time of just 18 minutes and 49 seconds which is cuckoo fast, by far the fastest in the study. North Korean linked hackers were second with two hours and 20 minutes and 14 seconds. I don't want to leave out those 14 seconds for the sake of accuracy. Uh, and then that's followed by Chinese and Iranian linked hackers uh, with a, a, a breakout average breakout time of four to five hours, respectively. Uh, that's a that's a pretty big spread when we're talking about average breakout time. I mean, you know, a number of hours uh, just kind of between the two. However, they're all a lot faster compared to non-affiliated hackers, which had an average breakout time of over 10 hours. 
Of course, the U.S. isn't listening to the study because I'm sure we don't do any state-sponsored hacking activities at all. Oh, there's something wrong with my eye. Tom, <laughs> this is the is this the biggest advertisement for micro-segmentation that you can think of? Yeah, this is like a gigantic like orbital <laughs> billboard screaming for micro-segmentation. This, this is the problem. The people who are getting really good at hacking your systems and not getting caught are getting way better at it. And let's be fair. We've known for a long time the Internet Research Agency and other farms like that operating out of Russia and other places are basically the cyber spetsnaz. You get really good at what you do and you don't get caught. I mean, 20 minutes. Software can barely accomplish that in 20 minutes. And they're already but they they know what they're looking for. They know exactly how to get around, um, you know, one could argue that, you know, if they have insider threats that help them out, let's face it, Russian is close enough to English that you can probably make an ex a, a reasonable sounding spear phishing email and get people in there. Um, who knows? But uh, you know, this is just this is nuts because you're right. You you can no longer think about the fact that your, you know, your ramparts are going to keep people out. You've got to be ready to to lock down your network. And microsegmentation is just the tip of the iceberg. You have to have DLP. You have to have some kind of advanced IDS IPS. You have to know for a fact that things are going on. I'm going to be talking to a lot of companies at RSA that are doing some kind of AI and machine learning focused um, heuristics detection. And it's, you know, when you look at all the this, this stuff that you're doing, like, oh, I don't know, being able to exfiltrate data over HTTPS, <laughs> that's pretty hard to detect, don't you think? <laughs> Well, and, you know, this this really just falls into what we've been hearing, I don't know, for the last two, three years um, across, uh, you know, events like R uh, RSA, things that we've heard at presentations from Tech Field Day, anywhere from, you know, I'm, I'm remembering presentations from Skyport Systems from, uh, from uh, was it Forcepoint? Was that? Yes. Yeah. Um, that basically... Trust no one. Trust trust is is the worst thing you could possibly have. Have the smallest possible surface area and just assume that everything will fail eventually. So you want yep. to have the smallest, I guess, uh, uh, fault plane for any kind of failure that you can possibly have. And this just proves it. It does make me question, though, what specifically the Russian hackers are are, are targeting. Obviously, it must be something more specific than some of the other groups to be able to get it to such a short amount of time, you know, maybe because they're specializing on, you know, whether it's uh, financial transactions or election databases or, or something like that, maybe by being so specific, they're able to really nail that time down as opposed to more general efforts. I mean, I think that's why the, the when you're looking at just general like cyber criminal hacking as opposed to state affiliated acting, the time is so wide is because they're they're just hitting a wider range of targets, but still very impressive and terrifying at the same time. Well I think it's probably because the beats that they put in the borscht are actually super fuel for cyber. <laughs> they got that pill. Uh, there we go. Um, speaking of possible hacking, uh, hey, the UK's uh, National Cybersecurity Center determined there are ways to mitigate the security risks in using Huawei's 5G infrastructure, according to sources speaking to the Financial Times. So no big deal. U.S., don't stress out. Uh, while not commenting specifically on the story, the NCSC stated that it had a unique oversight and understanding of Huawei, which doesn't sound ominous at all, and expected the company to address engineering and security concerns brought by an oversight panel last year, and that they are exploring a range of options for the UK's 5G deployment. It seems to be less of an endorsement of Huawei and more just the UK saying they're going to play the field for infrastructure suppliers and not ruling them out, uh, and they still want to buy them probably for non-core 5G stuff, I would imagine. Um, but Tom, surprising to see them buck pressure from the U.S. like this. That's all we've been hearing the last 
year, basically, is that the U.S. is putting heavy pressure on allies to avoid Huawei. Well, pretty sure that the U.K. is is on the outs with everybody <laughs> right now. Um, you know, so why not why not Brexit from the 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 Huawei cadre of no way? Um, <laughs> you know, this is the thing. Yes, there's an oversight committee that examined everything inside of Huawei's code and said that, you know, we don't see any any problems with it. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge, cash, cash, <laughs> payout. Um, no, I think what this is, is that Huawei basically walked in and said, hey, we'll let you look at anything you want as long as you're willing to use our stuff. And they showed them everything that they had. And the panel's like, oh, pip, pip, cheerio, everything's great with this. <laughs> but in reality, what's happening is, is, you know, I'm not buying into a specific problem with the, the bug IDs and stuff in Huawei. And, and let's be fair. At this point, we have no concrete evidence that anything has ever been untoward about Huawei, aside from some hinkiness with their code back in the day where they had EIGRP command strings in it. But it's the idea that it could happen. And the fact that it would be shipped out, it could be government sponsored, and we would never know. Because you know what? It's one thing for a threat actor to slip things into your code and you know it immediately raises alarms everywhere because it fails a digital signature check. Something entirely different when the government is basically leaning on you to put this stuff in your code and you're like, hey, you're darn right we will. And it all passes a signature check because nobody knows any differently. And I think well, that that's part of the problem that the US has is that they can't know that for sure. And of course, that is a really big 48 state kettle that or 48 state pot calling every other kettle black because we know we've done it with the NSA. <laughs> well, and then the other the other side of this is and it, it was kind of striking to me that 5G is such the sticking point for this, right? I mean, we've we've had other telecommunications rollouts, but that the fact that I, I just saw this put into perspective, I think it was in researching this piece that it's because we're anticipating 5G to be such kind of an offload for more traditional um you know, landline based internet, broadband based internet, that, you know, the, 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 the bandwidth and the volume that we're going to be seeing over 5G will even make it, you know, on top of everything else, there'll be so much more haystack to find that state sponsor needle in um, that, you know, this is why it's such a sticking point is just because we don't, we're not going to have the ability to parse that kind of bandwidth, you know, from a national security perspective. Yeah, exactly. Uh, speaking of things that should keep you up at night, Wired's Tom Simonet reports that OpenAI, founded by Elon Musk and Sam Altman in order to give away AI discoveries, has developed something they don't feel safe giving away. <laughs> oh, that feeling up your spine, that was someone walking over your grave. The system was designed to learn patterns of uh, language and sc uh, score better on reading comprehension tests than other automated systems, but it's the ability of the system to generate text that feels real that has OpenAI concern. Repeat. A foundation meant to give away AI tech is super concerned about something they developed. A research paper was published, uh, but not the full. Also, put constraints on sharing AI research over fears of misuse. OpenAI literally founded to give this stuff away, uh, but is the potential power of AI something that just makes it incompatible with the idea of like open access, open source, Tom? Well, I tried this out and I just, I, I don't know if it's ready for prime time yet or not, because all it kept asking me is if I knew someone named Sarah Connor. <laughs> no, th this is the problem that we run into when we start looking at this. There was another thing that came out here recently uh, that a lot of people were, were sharing uh, where there was an AI generated face database. Like every yeah. three seconds you could hit refresh and it would give you a new face. And I was like, oh, that's uncanny. I'm like, oh, that's the power of, you know, millions of processors working at once. <laughs> what you're seeing is a natural evolution of things. You know, uh, there are writing exams that are graded by computers now because they know exactly what to look for. It's it's not 
unlikely. We we definitely couldn't let, uh, let let's be fair. The average rudimentary AI writes a lot better than a lot of other people in the world. That that's just the nature of things. So yeah, we may have let the genie out of the bottle a little bit here. And I know that Elon Musk is probably standing over the bottle with a very large electrically powered plasma rifle trying to get the <laughs> AI to not find Sarah Connor. But I, this this is a natural progression of things. Um, at least we know about it. We, we, we could have slipped this in anywhere and it could have been a real fun time for us to figure out, hey, remember all those platform speeches in the 2020 campaign? Yeah, they were all written by robots. <laughs> yeah, the, you know, I, I've seen, you know, there was the big controversy over the deep fake videos where, you know, yeah. you're using basically consumer grade graphics cards to be able to put other people's faces on video and kind of, you know, the, the, the fervor over that and the terror over that kind of compared to the early days of Photoshop, right? Where people were like, oh, we're not gonna be able to trust photos because anyone can do this on any computer. And the idea that, okay, yeah, we're going to get desensitized to it. We're going to figure out ways to find out, okay, that doesn't look quite right. That's obviously Photoshopped or, or, you know, find the weird little artifacts that we're all just kind of intrinsically looking for now in the, in the age when anything could be Photoshopped, just kind of realizing that imaging doesn't necessarily mean, you know, this was how it was in reality, something like that. The problem I think with this is, or I, I guess maybe the solution to this is that everyone's terrible grammar that they use in texting and everything like that is going to be so bad and so vaguely unpredictable that AIs will be, be able to be spotted because they're just far too grammatically accurate going forward. Yeah, but if AI ever learns how to use emojis, we're screwed. I for oh, yeah. one welcome our new robot emoji overlords. You know, I just saw that uh, uh, one of the problems with emojis now is that uh, court transcripts are having a really hard time uh, inputting those into, you know, when people submit text uh, uh, records for uh, as evidence and understanding the context of, you know, what that peach meant. Who could know? Uh, it's very complicated, uh, but uh, this is the messy and hideous future that AI has for us all. I highly recommend you check out the Wired article because they actually had writing samples from this. In fact, uh, Tom Simonite had it do a one-star Amazon review uh, of a book that he didn't write or something like that. And it, it is eerie uh, how well it kind of just pulls from the tropes and puts it all together. And and it's not just like one sentence is really good. The whole thing loops together. That's what's really concerning to me is that it's not, again, it's not just writing a coherent sentence because you can just, you could probably do a predictive algorithm to do some kind of sentence structure and, hey, this is the direct object and figure that out. But to have a coherent paragraph, I think, is a bigger deal. Uh, we'll see if uh, our uh, our super awesome pattern matching brains will be able to deal with that going forward. So, Tom, uh, before the AI apocalypse uh, comes for us all, where can people find more of your fine stuff to check out? Well, there's a lot of places. Um, I'm currently hiring uh, robot overlords to write for networkingnerd.net. Because um, let's face it, I haven't put together a coherent paragraph in about five years. <laughs> um, you can also check me out on gestaltit.com. I've been putting a lot of great content out there. Uh, we've cut some coverage of our field day events that we've had over the last couple of uh, months and uh, some exciting things to look forward to like RSA and security field day and possibly even mobility field day. Fantastic. You can find more of my uh, good stuff at gestaltit.com, right in there all the time. Or you can find me on the Twitters at Mr. Anthropology, MR Anthropology. Uh, there will probably be baby related things there. Sorry, it's not very engaging. You don't have to follow me. That's okay. Uh, but we'll be back next Wednesday at 1230 p.m. Eastern time to run down the IT news of the week. Until then, head on over to gestaltit.com to stay up to date with the latest and greatest in enterprise tech. Until the next time we meet, remember everybody, have a super sparkly day.